0: Section 26 of The Descent of Man Part 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Descent of Man Part 2 by Charles Darwin. Chapter 17 Secondary Sexual Characters of Mammals Part 2 Male Quadrupeds which are furnished with tusks, use them in various ways, as in the case of horns. The boar strikes laterally and upwards, the musk deer downwards with serious effect. The walrus, though having so short a neck and so unwieldy a body, can strike either upwards or downwards or sideways with equal dexterity. I was informed by the late Dr. Falconer, that the Indian elephant fights in a different manner according to the position and curvature of his tusks. When they are directed forwards and upwards, he is able to fling a tiger to a great distance, it is said to even thirty feet. When they are short and turned downwards, he endeavours suddenly to pin the tiger to the ground, and in consequence is dangerous to the rider, who is liable to be jerked off the howdah. See also course on the manner in which the short-tusked mukna variety attacks other elephants. Very few male quadrupeds possess weapons of two distinct kinds, specially adapted for fighting with rival males. The male muntjac deer, Servulus, however, offers an exception, as he is provided with horns and exerted canine teeth but we may infer from what follows that one form of weapon has often been replaced in the course of ages by another. With ruminants, the development of horns generally stands in an inverse relation with that of even moderately developed canine teeth. Thus camels, guanacos, chevrotains, and musk deer are hornless, and they have efficient canines, these teeth being always of smaller size in the females than in the males. The Camelidae have, in addition to their true canines, a pair of canine-shaped incisors in their upper jaws. Male deer and antelopes, on the other hand, possess horns, and they rarely have canine teeth, and these, when present, are always of small size, so that it is doubtful whether they are of any service in their battles. In Antelope Montana, they exist only as rudiments in the young male. Disappearing as he grows old, and they are absent in the female at all ages. But the females of certain other antelopes and of certain deer have been known occasionally to exhibit rudiments of these teeth or canines in an adult female deer. In old males of the musk deer, the canines sometimes grow to the length of three inches, whilst in old females, a rudiment projects scarcely half an inch above the gums. Stallions have small canine teeth, which are either quite absent or rudimentary in the mare, but they do not appear to be used in fighting, for stallions bite with their incisors, and do not open their mouths wide, like camels and guanacos. Whenever the adult male possesses canines, now inefficient, whilst the female has either none or mere rudiments, we may conclude that the early male progenitor of the species was provided with efficient canines, which have been partially transferred to the females. The reduction of these teeth in the males seems to have followed from some change in their manner of fighting, often, but not in the horse, caused by the development of new weapons. Tusks and horns are manifestly of high importance to their possessors, their development consumes much organized matter. A single tusk of the Asiatic elephant, one of the extinct woolly species, and of the African elephant, have been known to weigh respectively 150, 160, and 180 pounds, and even greater weights have been given by some authors. With deer, in which the horns are periodically renewed, the drain on the constitution must be greater the horns, for instance, of the moose, weigh from fifty to sixty pounds, and those of the extinct Irish elk from sixty to seventy pounds, the skull of the latter weighing on an average only five pounds and a quarter. Although the horns are not periodically renewed in sheep, yet their development, in the opinion of many agriculturalists, entails a sensible loss to the breeder. Stags, moreover, in escaping from beasts of prey, are loaded with an additional weight for the race, and are greatly retarded in passing through a woody country. The moose, for instance, with horns extending five and a half feet from tip to tip, although so skillful in their use that he will not touch or break a twig when walking quietly, cannot act so dexterously whilst rushing away from a pack of wolves. During his progress he holds his nose up, so as to lay the horns horizontally back, and in this attitude cannot see the ground distinctly. The tips of the horns of the great Irish elk were actually eight feet apart. Whilst the horns are covered with velvet, which lasts with red deer for about twelve weeks, they are extremely sensitive to a blow, so that in Germany the stags at this time somewhat change their habits, and avoid dense forests, frequent young woods, and low thickets. These facts remind us, that male birds have acquired ornamental plumes at the cost of retarded flight and other ornaments at the cost of some loss of power in their battles with rival males with mammals when as is often the case the sexes differ in size the males are almost always larger and stronger i am informed by mr gould that this holds good in a marked manner with the marsupials of australia the males of which appear to continue growing until an unusually late age. But the most extraordinary case is that of one of the seals, Calorhinus ursinus, a full-grown female weighing less than one-sixth of a full-grown male. Dr. Gill remarks that it is with the polygamous seals, the males of which are well known to fight savagely together, that the sexes differ much in size, the monogamous species differing but little Whales also afford evidence of the relation existing between the pugnacity of the males and their large size, compared with that of the female. The males of the right whales do not fight together, and they are not larger, but rather smaller, than their females. On the other hand, male sperm whales fight much together, and their bodies are often found scarred with the imprint of their rival's teeth and they are double the size of the females. The greater strength of the male, as Hunter long ago remarked, is invariably displayed in those parts of the body which are brought into action in fighting with rival males, for instance, in the massive neck of the bull. Male quadrupeds are also more courageous and pugnacious than the females. There can be little doubt that these characters have been gained, partly through sexual selection, owing to a long series of victories, by the stronger and more courageous males over the weaker, and partly through the inherited effects of use. It is probable that the successive variations in strength, size, and courage, whether due to mere variability or to the effects of use, by the accumulation of which male quadrupeds have acquired these characteristic qualities, occurred rather late in life and were consequently to a large extent limited in their transmission to the same sex. From these considerations I was anxious to obtain information as to the Scotch-deer-hound, the sexes of which differ more in size than those of any other breed, though bloodhounds differ considerably, or than in any wild canine species known to me. Accordingly, I applied to Mr. Couples, well known for his success with this breed, who has weighed and measured many of his own dogs, and who has with great kindness collected for me the following facts from various sources. Fine male dogs, measured at the shoulder, range from twenty-eight inches, which is low, to thirty-three or even thirty-four inches in height, and in weight from eighty pounds, which is light, to one hundred twenty pounds or even more. The females range in height from 23 to 27, or even to 28 inches, and in weight from 50 to 70, or even 80 pounds. Much valuable information on the Scottish deerhound is given by Mr. McNeil, who first called attention to the inequality in size between the sexes in Scrope's art of deer stalking. I hope that Mr. Couples will keep to his intention of publishing a full account and history of this famous breed. Mr. Couples concludes that from ninety-five to one hundred pounds for the male, and seventy for the female, would be a safe average, but there is reason to believe that formerly both sexes attained a greater weight. Mr. Couples has weighed puppies when a fortnight old. In one litter the average weight of four males exceeded that of two females by six and a half ounces. In another litter, the average weight of four males exceeded that of one female by less than one ounce. The same males, when three weeks old, exceeded the female by seven and a half ounces, and at the age of six weeks by nearly fourteen ounces. Mr. Wright of Yeldersley House, in a letter to Mr. Couples, says, quote, I have taken notes on the sizes and weights of puppies of many litters, and as far as my experience goes, dog puppies as a rule differ very little from bitches till they arrive at about five or six months old and then the dogs begin to increase gaining upon the bitches both in weight and size at birth and for several weeks afterwards a bitch puppy will occasionally be larger than any of the dogs but they are invariably beaten by them later Mr. McNeil of Collinsay concludes that the males do not attain their full growth till over two years old, though the females attain it sooner. According to Mr. Couples' experience, male dogs go on growing in stature till they are from twelve to eighteen months old, and in weight till from eighteen to twenty-four months old whilst the female sees increasing in stature at the age of from nine to fourteen or fifteen months, and in weight at the age of from twelve to fifteen months. From these various statements it is clear that the full difference in size between the male and female Scotch-deerhound is not acquired until rather late in life. The males almost exclusively are used for coursing, For, as Mr. McNeil informs me, the females have not sufficient strength and weight to pull down a full-grown deer. From the names used in old legends, it appears, as I hear from Mr. Couples, that at a very ancient period, the males were the most celebrated, the females being mentioned only as the mothers of famous dogs hence during many generations it is the male which has been chiefly tested for strength size speed and courage and the best will have been bred from as however the males do not attain their full dimensions until rather late in life they will have tended in accordance with the law often indicated to transmit their characters to their male offspring alone and thus the great inequality in size between the sexes of the scotch deer-hound may probably be accounted for the males of some few quadrupeds possess organs or parts developed solely as a means of defence against the attacks of other males some kinds of deer use as we have seen the upper branches of their horns chiefly or exclusively for defending themselves and the oryx antelope as I am informed by Mr. Bartlett, fences most skilfully with his long, gently curved horns, but these are likewise used as organs of offense. The same observer remarks that rhinoceroses, in fighting, parry each other's sidelong blows with their horns, which clatter loudly together, as do the tusks of boars. Although wild boars fight desperately, they seldom, according to Bram, receive fatal wounds as the blows fall on each other's tusks or on the layer of grisly skin covering the shoulder called by the german hunters the shield and here we have a part specially modified for defense with boars in the prime of life the tusks in the lower jaw are used for fighting but they become in old age as Brem states so much curved inwards and upwards over the snout that they can no longer be used in this way They may, however, still serve, and even more efficiently, as a means of defense. In compensation for the loss of the lower tusks as weapons of offense, those in the upper jaw, which always project a little laterally, increase in old age so much in length and curve so much upwards that they can be used for attack. Nevertheless, an old boar is not so dangerous to man as one at the age of six or seven years in the full-grown male babirusa pig of celebes the lower tusks are formidable weapons like those of the european boar in the prime of life whilst the upper tusks are so long and have their points so much curled inwards sometimes even touching the forehead that they are utterly useless as weapons of attack they more nearly resemble horns than teeth and are so manifestly useless as teeth that the animal was formerly supposed to rest his head by hooking them on to a branch. Their convex surfaces, however, if the head were held a little laterally, would serve as an excellent guard, and hence, perhaps it is that in old animals they are generally broken off as if by fighting. Here, then, we have the curious case of the upper tusks of the babirusa, regularly assuming during the prime of life a structure which apparently renders them fitted only for defense. Whilst in the European boar, the lower tusks assume in a less degree, and only during old age, nearly the same form, and then serve in like manner solely for defense. In the Warthog, C. Phacocaris, Aethiopicus. The tusks in the lower jaw of the male curve upwards during the prime of life, and from being pointed, serve as formidable weapons. The tusks in the lower jaw are sharper than those in the upper, but from their shortness it seems hardly possible that they can be used as weapons of attack. They must, however, greatly strengthen those in the upper jaw from being ground so as to fit closely against their bases. Neither the upper nor the lower tusks appear to have been specially modified to act as guards, though no doubt they are to a certain extent used for this purpose. But the warthog is not destitute of other special means of protection, for it has on each side of the face beneath the eyes a rather stiff yet flexible cartilaginous oblong pad, which projects two or three inches outwards and it appears to Mr. Bartlett and myself, when viewing the living animal, that these pads, when struck from beneath by the tusks of an opponent, would be turned upwards, and would thus admirably protect the somewhat prominent eyes. I may add on the authority of Mr. Bartlett that these boars, when fighting, stand directly face to face. Lastly, the African river-hog, Potumocaris penicillatus has a hard cartilaginous knob on each side of the face beneath the eyes, which answers to the flexible pad of the warthog. It has also two bony prominences in the upper jaw above the nostrils. A boar of this species in the zoological gardens recently broke into the cage of the warthog. They fought all night long, and were found in the morning much exhausted but not seriously wounded. It is a significant fact, as showing the purposes of the above described projections and excrescences, that these were covered with blood, and were scored and abraded in an extraordinary manner. Although the males of so many members of the pig family are provided with weapons, and as we have just seen with the means of defense, these weapons seem to have been acquired within a rather late geological period, Dr. Forsyth Major specifies several Miocene species in none of which do the tusks appear to have been largely developed in the males, and Professor Rudemeyer was formerly struck with the same fact. The mane of the lion forms a good defence against the attack of rival lions, the one danger to which he is liable, for the males, as Sir A. Smith informs me, engage in terrible battles and a young lion dares not approach an old one. In 1857 a tiger at Bromwich broke into the cage of a lion, and a fearful scene ensued. The lion's mane saved his neck and head from being much injured, but the tiger at last succeeded in ripping up his belly, and in a few minutes he was dead. The broad ruff round the throat and chin of the Canadian lynx, Felix canadensis, is much longer in the male than in the female but whether it serves as a defence I do not know male seals are well known to fight desperately together and the males of certain kinds otaria ubata have great manes whilst the females have small ones or none the male baboon of the cape of good hope cynocephalus parcarius, has a much longer mane and larger canine teeth than the female and the mane probably serves as a protection, for on asking the keepers in the zoological gardens, without giving them any clue to my object whether any of the monkeys especially attacked each other by the nape of the neck, I was answered that this was not the case, except with the above baboon. In the hamadryas baboon, Ehrenberg compares the mane of the adult male to that of a young lion, whilst in the young of both sexes and in the female— The mane is almost absent. It appeared to me probable that the immense woolly mane of the male American bison, which reaches almost to the ground and is much more developed in the males than in the females, served as a protection to them in their terrible battles, but an experienced hunter told Judge Caton that he had never observed anything which favored this belief. The stallion has a thicker and fuller mane than the mare and i have made particular inquiries of two great trainers and breeders who have had charge of many entire horses and am assured that they invariably endeavour to seize one another by the neck it does not however follow from the foregoing statements that when the hair on the neck serves as a defence that it was originally developed for this purpose though this is probable in some cases as in that of the lion I am informed by Mr. McNeil that the long hairs on the throat of the stag, cervus elephus, serve as a great protection to him when hunted, for the dogs generally endeavor to seize him by the throat. But it is not probable that these hairs were specially developed for this purpose, otherwise the young and the females would have been equally protected. CHOICE IN PAIRING BY EITHER SEX OF QUADRUPEDS Before describing in the next chapter... The differences between the sexes in voice, odors emitted, and ornaments, it will be convenient here to consider whether the sexes exert any choice in their unions. Does the female prefer any particular male, either before or after the males may have fought together for supremacy? Or does the male, when not a polygamist, select any particular female? The general impression amongst breeders seems to be that the male accepts any female and this owing to his eagerness is in most cases probably the truth whether the female as a general rule indifferently accepts any male is much more doubtful in the fourteenth chapter on birds a considerable body of direct and indirect evidence was advanced showing that the female selects her partner and it would be a strange anomaly if female quadrupeds which stand higher in the scale and have higher mental powers did not generally or at least often exert some choice the female could in most cases escape if wooed by a male that did not please or excite her and when pursued by several males as commonly occurs she would often have the opportunity whilst they were fighting together of escaping with some one male or at least of temporarily pairing with him this latter contingency has often been observed in scotland with female red deer as i am informed by sir philip egerton and others mr boner in his excellent description of the habits of the red deer in germany says while the stag is defending his rights against one intruder another invades the sanctuary of his harem and carries off trophy after trophy exactly the same thing occurs with seals It is scarcely possible that much should be known about female quadrupeds in a state of nature making any choice in their marriage unions. The following curious details on the courtship of one of the eared seals, Calorinus ursinus, are given on the authority of Captain Bryant, who had ample opportunities for observation. He says, Many of the females on their arrival at the island where they breed appear desirous of returning to some particular male, and frequently climb the outlying rocks to overlook the rookeries, calling out and listening, as if for a familiar voice. Then changing to another place, they do the same again. As soon as a female reaches the shore, the nearest male goes down to meet her, making meanwhile a noise like the clucking of a hen to her chickens. He bows to her, and coaxes her until he gets between her and the water, so that she cannot escape him. Then his manner changes, and with a harsh growl he drives her to a place in his harem. This continues until the lower row of harems is nearly full. Then the males higher up select the time when their more fortunate neighbors are off their guard to steal their wives. This they do by taking them in their mouths and lifting them over the heads of the other females, and carefully placing them in their own harem, carrying them as cats do their kittens. Those still higher up pursue the same method until the whole space is occupied. Frequently a struggle ensues between two males for the possession of the same female, and both seizing her at once pull her in two or terribly lacerate her with their teeth. When the space is all filled, the old male walks around complacently, reviewing his family, scolding those who crowd or disturb the others, and fiercely driving off all intruders. This surveillance always keeps him actively occupied. As so little is known about the courtship of animals in the state of nature, I have endeavored to discover how far our domesticated quadrupeds evince any choice in their unions. Dogs offer the best opportunity for observation, as they are carefully attended to and well understood. Many breeders have expressed a strong opinion on this head. Thus Mr. Mayhew remarks, the females are able to bestow their affections and tender recollections are as potent over them as they are known to be in other cases where higher animals are concerned bitches are not always prudent in their loves but are apt to fling themselves away on curs of low degree if reared with a companion of vulgar appearance there often springs up between the pair a devotion which no time can afterwards subdue the passion for such it really is Becomes of a more than romantic endurance. End quote. Mr. Mayhew, who attended chiefly to the smaller breeds, is convinced that the females are strongly attracted by males of a large size. The well known veterinary Blaine states that his own female pug dog became so attracted to a spaniel and a female setter to a cur that in neither case would they pair with a dog of their own breed until several weeks had elapsed. Two similar and trustworthy accounts have been given me in regard to a female retriever and a spaniel, both of which became enamored with terrier-dogs. Mr. Couples informs me that he can personally vouch for the accuracy of the following more remarkable case, in which a valuable and wonderfully intelligent female terrier loved a retriever belonging to a neighbor to such a degree that she had often to be dragged away from him. After their permanent separation although repeatedly showing milk in her teats, she would never acknowledge the courtship of any other dog, and to the regret of her owner, never bore puppies. Mr. Couples also states that in 1868 a female deer-hound in his kennel thrice produced puppies, and on each occasion showed a marked preference for one of the largest and handsomest, but not the most eager, of four deer-hounds living with her, all in the prime of life." mr cupples had observed that the female generally favors a dog whom she has associated with and knows her shyness and timidity at first incline her against a strange dog the male on the contrary seems rather inclined towards strange females it appears to be rare when the male refuses any particular female but mr wright of yeldersley house a great breeder of dogs informs me that he has known some instances he cites the case of one of his own deer hounds who would not take any notice of a particular female mastiff, so that another deer-hound had to be employed. It would be superfluous to give, as I could, other instances, and I will only add that Mr. Barr, who has carefully bred many bloodhounds, states that in almost every instance particular individuals of opposite sexes show a decided preference for each other. Finally Mr. Couples, after attending to his subject for another year, has written to me, Quote, i have had full confirmation of my former statement that dogs in breeding form decided preferences for each other being often influenced by size bright color and individual characters as well as by the degree of their previous familiarity in regard to horses mr Blinkiron, the greatest breeder of race-horses in the world informs me that stallions are so frequently capricious in their choice, rejecting one mare and without any apparent cause taking to another, that various artifices have to be habitually used. The famous monarch, for instance, would never consciously look at the dam of gladiator, and a trick had to be practiced. We can partly see the reason why valuable racehorse stallions, which are in such demand as to be exhausted, should be so particular in their choice, Mr. Blankiron has never known a mare reject a horse, but this has occurred in Mr. Wright's stable, so that the mare had to be cheated. Prosper Lucas quotes various statements from French authorities and remarks, voit des étalons qui s'apprenant d'une jument et négligeant toutes les autres. He gives on the authority of Balin similar facts in regard to bulls and mr h reeks assures me that a famous short-horned bull belonging to his father invariably refused to be matched with a black cow Hofberg in describing the domesticated reindeer of lapland says foiminae maiores et fortiores mares prae caeteris admittunt, adeos confugunt, a junioribus agitatae qui hos in fugam conicium a clergyman who has bred many pigs asserts that sows often reject one boar and immediately accept another from these facts there can be no doubt that with most of our domesticated quadrupeds strong individual antipathies and preferences are frequently exhibited and much more commonly by the female than by the male this being the case it is improbable that the unions of quadrupeds in a state of nature should be left to mere chance it is much more probable that the females are allured or excited by particular males who possess certain characters in a higher degree than other males but what these characters are we can seldom or never discover with certainty end of section twenty six